And thank you all for being here this morning. Man, there's so many other things you could have done with your Sunday morning. You could be prepping for the big game. I don't think I'm allowed to say, I think I have to call it the big game. There's certain restrictions on that. Um, But you could have been doing that. You could have been sleeping in. You could have been at brunch, but you made a choice to be here, and we greatly appreciate that. Thank you for being with us today. As a church, we have been doing this thing that we are calling the Jesus Series. We started this in the fall, and we have been making our way through the life of Jesus in a mostly chronological order. And we've been doing this as a church because we're just trying to get to know Jesus better. We want to know him better. We want to be able to communicate him better with the people in our lives. We want to be better equipped to share Jesus with the people who don't yet know him. And so we're going through this Jesus series, reading the Gospels, seeing how Jesus interacts with people, hearing him speak in his own voice. That's what we're doing as a church. And today, we're going to take a look on an occasion where Jesus tells a story about a man who experiences a significant epiphany. That's what we're talking about this morning, epiphanies, right? We all go through these epiphanies in life, yes? Have you noticed this? These big epiphanies or little epiphanies, these sudden realizations, oh, that's how life works. Oh, that's why I do this thing. Oh, that's why this type of thing always happens. Epiphany moments, One of the fun things about being a parent is you get to experience these epiphany moments with your children. When our daughter Evangeline was very young, uh, she used to call Acme, Acmama. And we're thinking, why does she call Acme, Acmama? It doesn't make any sense. Uh, You know, we're going to Acmama. Acmama, what is that? And then she called it Acu. We're trying to fit. Why does she call it Ack Mama or Ack You? And then we realize when she hears Ack Me, she's not hearing Ack Me. She's hearing Ack Me or Ack You. And since Mama is the one that normally talks about Ack Me, she would call it Ack Mama. And we're like, oh, that's why you say that. Epiphany. Isn't that an adorable little epiphany? Yeah. How about that? I wish all the epiphanies we experience in life were that adorable. But they're not, right? In fact, a lot of us in this room have spent time like going to counselors or going to the therapy, and I can tell you from the counselor's perspective, that's one of the jobs of a counselor, one of the goals of a counselor is to help you realize some things about yourself, to bring it to that place of epiphany. And as I mentioned earlier, we're going to read this story that Jesus tells, the story from Luke 15, this parable, the story that he tells, and in this story, there is a man who experiences this very significant epiphany. And if you're not careful, you might just read right by, but we're not going to skip by that today. We're going to focus on this epiphany that this man experiences in this story that Jesus tells. I want to encourage you to open up your Bible to Luke chapter 15 or open up your Bible app to Luke 15. And we're going to set the stage a little bit here. In Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables to his audience. We're going to focus on this third and final parable that he tells. But let's set the stage here a little bit. Luke 15, chapter 1, now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him, to Jesus, to listen to him, all right? So the bad people, the sinners, were coming to Jesus to listen to him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes, okay, the the members of the religious establishment, the Jewish leaders, they began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them which in that culture was a big deal. You're not supposed to share a meal with someone who is a sinner, someone who is unclean. And so they're grumbling. And in response to their grumbling, Jesus tells three pointed stories. All right? So the stage has been set here. 
You've got a diverse audience. On the one hand, you have a group of, of sinners, people who have strayed far from God, and they acknowledge their sinfulness, and they're, they're willing to hear Jesus out. And on the other hand, you have this group of Pharisees and scribes, this group of people who believe that they have God already figured out. And here's something we have seen all the way through the ministry of Jesus, the different ways that people approach Jesus. The members of the religious establishment approach Jesus from a place of, of pride, like we have God figured out, we're going to listen to you, Jesus, but you need to meet our standards, right? And then there were people that we affectionately refer to as the sinners, who for the most part approached Jesus with some humility. Well, let's hear this guy out. What does he have to say, right? And so once again, we're seeing Jesus speak to this diverse group, and the first parable that he tells is the parable of the lost sheep. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with that parable, I want to encourage you today, before kickoff, read that parable, because this story of the lost sheep is perhaps the most important passage of Scripture for us as a church. And Jesus tells this story about a shepherd, and he has 99 sheep that are saved, that are safe. And yet this shepherd prioritizes seeking after the one who is lost. And so the one who is lost is the priority for the shepherd, not the ones who are saved. And the point that Jesus is making in this is pretty clear. Now, that's the priority for Jesus. Not going after the people who are already saved, but the people who aren't yet. And that should be our priority as well. So that's the first story he tells. The second story he tells is about a woman who has some coins and she loses one. Well, she's not going to go looking for the coins she already has, is she? That doesn't make sense. Where are the coins? No, she has them already. Instead, she goes seeking after the one coin that she has lost. Doesn't that make sense? And when she finds the one that's lost, they're celebrating. That's the priority, the one who was lost. And so now Jesus brings us to this third story that is the most pointed and poignant of all of these parables. We refer to this sometimes as the, the parable of the lost son or the parable of the prodigal son. Have you heard that term prodigal before? You know, I grew up in a church setting. I heard about the prodigal son. I had no idea what that word prodigal meant, but apparently it means to spend lavishly and excessively and perhaps even wastefully. And so Jesus brings us to this story. And so just remember who Jesus is talking to as he tells this story. He's talking to a divided group. Some prideful people who think they've got Jesus all figured out. You've got the Pharisees and the scribes, and then some other people who are humble in spirit and willing to listen to Jesus. He's got some self-righteous and some sinners, and he tells them this story. He said, a man had two sons. Let's stop right there. I'm going to spoil this a little bit for you, okay? I'm going to tell you who these characters represent, just so we can follow along, all right? The man, the father, that's God. And the two sons in this story represent the two different groups of people Jesus was talking to. The one son, the older son, represents the Pharisees and the scribes. The younger son represents the sinners, okay? So I apologize for spoiling that for you, but I want you to see that even before this story gets started. Here's who these characters represent, all right? A man, a father, has two sons. The younger, who represents the sinners, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. 
Now, this story is so succinct and so truncated here that we need to spend some time you know, unraveling this, unpacking this a little bit. And so there is a, a younger son who says, Dad, we all know how this works. And apparently this dad was a very wealthy man. He said, Dad, we know how this works. Uh, one day you're going to die. And when you do, I get my share of the estate. I get my share of my inheritance. And so here's what I would like. I would like that now so that I can leave you. All right? Now, to a father's ears, you have to imagine how harsh this is because essentially what this younger son is saying is, I'd rather I were rich and you were dead, okay? But for some reason, you're still alive, so can I just have my share now so that I can go and live my own way? This son valued the stuff more than he valued a relationship with his father. I don't want to live in this house. I don't want to live under your roof. I don't want to live under your rule. I just want what's coming to me. Give me the gifts, give me the blessings, and then I'll be on my way. Now, fathers, if you had a son that said that to you, how would you respond? Are you kidding me? Go take a hike. What are you, do what are you doing here? But for some reason, the father in the story says, okay, you don't want to live here? You don't want to live under my roof? You don't want to live under my protection? You don't want to live by my rules? Fine, I will give you what you've asked for. Now, this was more complicated in those days than just to write a check. I mean, a person's wealth and money was really tied up in their possessions, and so things had to be sold here, and so that's what happens. And to sell some stuff to, to give this younger son his share of the estate. Verse 13, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Isn't that a fun expression, loose living? And as we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to see what that entails. And so he spends all of this money on loose living. He had some money. He could have done whatever he wanted with that money. Could have started up his own business, right? Could have made an investment in something. Could have bought a little piece of property. But he just, he wastes it. He has some parties, a series of parties. Now, when he had spent everything, verse 14, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. And so famine equals like economic depression in those times, and really in our times too. And so a season of, of strain on the economy, and he finds himself in this perfect storm of, 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 of you know, bad events here. He's out of money, out of work, and the economy is in the toilet. And so here he is, what am I supposed to do? So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. Now, swine, pigs, were unclean animals, and so this was a very degrading work for this man. Again, Jesus is speaking to an entirely Jewish audience, and the Jews knew not to interact with swine and don't eat the meat from pigs. And so this is a very degrading and lowly job that this man is forced to take on. And so he hires himself out. He's feeding the pigs. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. And no one was giving him, no one was giving anything to him. And so there he's in that situation, feeding pigs, feeding them the, the pods, you know, pea pods, but not the peas, just the pods, all right? And he's looking at that, just salivating. I wish I could eat those pea pods. But no one's giving anything to him. Verse 17, but when he came to his senses, ah, see, that's it. That's it. He comes to his senses. 
let's not read this too quickly because what this younger son is experiencing in this moment, in the muck, with the pigs, is a major life-altering epiphany that this man has in the dirt at his rock bottom. He comes to his senses and he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. And he thinks about this, and he thinks about his father. You know, that father, he was so eager to, to leave his house and to leave his rules, right? But he thinks about his father and realizes, my father is a good man. And even his servants, even the hired help around the estate, he treats them better than this guy's treating me. He cares for his servants. He feeds them well. But here I am, dying with hunger. Verse 18, I will get up, go to my father, and will say to him, Father, here, here it is. Here's the expression of this epiphany. Father, I have sinned. I have sinned. Notice here what he's not saying, right? Oh, Father, I'm going to go back to my father and say, you know what? It was just a series of, of misfortunate events. That's all it was, right? And I just got myself in a bind, and could you just write me another check? Because I ended up in this really lousy situation, but, but it's really not my fault, right? I had a bunch of friends, and they were with me, and they convinced me to buy all this alcohol, and so I bought, you know, I bought the kegs for the parties, and uh, it was really their fault. They convinced me to spend this money. And then there were some women, and I thought these women really liked me, but then I had to pay them to party with us. And so, listen, it's not my fault. It's the economy. It's the women. It's my friends. It's all these other factors have led to me being here feeding pigs. No. No. This son realizes, no, 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 no. This is on me. I brought this upon myself. There's your epiphany. An epiphany that requires humility. I brought this upon myself. I'm not blaming other factors or other forces. Now, we compare this parable that Jesus tells us to what we read in Genesis, the very beginning, the beginning of humankind. And what happens in that account from Genesis? You know, we see God giving Adam and Eve one rule to follow. Do not eat from that tree, and yet they sin, and they eat from that tree. And God calls them out on their sin. And what does Eve say? She doesn't say, you know what? I have sinned against you, God. No. She says, it was the snake. There was a snake, and it was talking, and it deceived me. She doesn't accept responsibility. <laughs> she blames the snake. And what about Adam? Adam says, well, it was the woman, right? I was minding my own business, and that woman came along. Matter of fact, uh, God, you put that woman. It's your fault, God. Adam blames the woman and blames God. No, 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 no. It was their own fault. And so this, this sinner here, this, this younger son who has wasted, wasted the gift from Father, from Father God, he realizes, no, 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 no. It's not my friend's fault. It's not the fault of the women. It's not the fault of the economy. It, I brought this on myself. I have sinned. And so he comes up with this plan. I'm going to go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight, and I am no longer worthy 
to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so you realize just the, the sincerity of his humility in this moment. I mean, he's realizing, I am no longer worthy to be called my father's son. And maybe if I go back to my father, and maybe if I own it, this was on me and I've sinned against you, maybe he would consider just taking me on as one of his hired servants. Would he consider that? And so that's what he decides to do. I'm going to go back to my father. And so he makes this journey back. He got up. He came to his father, and so we don't know how far away. I mean, it's a distant country. We don't know how long of a journey that was and how hungry he was along the way. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Let's pause for another moment there. How is his father going to see him if he's a long way off? Because he's looking for him, right? I mean, this father is waiting for this day. Maybe my son will return one day. And so he's peeking through the blinds, right? Or he's standing out there on the porch just waiting. Maybe one day my son will return. And so while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And what's his response? Ah, great. This kid coming back probably wants another check. Probably wants some more money. No, that's not his attitude at all. Because this father, again, represents God. So he sees him a long way off, and he felt compassion. There's your key word. Felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So there's the dad waiting on the porch, finally sees his son, isn't overwhelmed with uh, anger and bitterness and who's this guy coming back to me. No, is filled with compassion, and he runs out to him. He doesn't stand there and say, all right. What do you have to say for yourself? No, he runs out to him. Now, fun fact about that culture at that time, running is something that dignified men did not do, okay? Children would run. Perhaps a woman would run, but not a wealthy man. It was not dignified. You did not do that. I mean, you have your fancy robes on. And so for a, a wealthy man to run, man, he had to kind of gather up his robes and kind of waddle his way out to his son. There's nothing dignified about that. Do you appreciate these little act-outs that I do for you? Did you? Do you want me to do that again? He's running out all goofy to his son. But he doesn't care about that because he's filled with compassion and he's filled with love. And before, before this younger son can even open his mouth, he's hugging him and kissing him. And the son said to him, verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's got more to his speech that he's prepared. You know, in his mind, he's been saying, you know, I'm not worthy to be called your son. If you would please consider taking me on as one of your hired hands. But he doesn't even get to finish his speech. Because look what happens. No longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, said to his slaves, quickly, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Do you see how quickly Father God is ready and eager and willing to forgive and to restore 
when there is genuine repentance. And because the Father in this story is God, He knows the heart of the Son, and He knows there is sincere repentance there, genuine, humble repentance. And He restores Him back to sonship. Doesn't even entertain the idea of hiring Him as a slave. No. Restores Him back to His sonship. And not only that, we're going to celebrate this. It began to celebrate. Verse 25. Now, his older son was in the field. Ooh, wonder what this guy's going to have to say about this whole situation, right? Where's this older son been this whole story? All right. Well, he's in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began to inquire what these things could be. And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. All right, older siblings out there, <laughs> how would you feel? Oh, good, he's back. Yeah, great. Right, wonderful. The son that took all of our father's wealth and then went on his own way. I'm so glad that he's back and that we're having a party for him. No, <laughs> not at all. I mean, really, how would you feel? We're having a party for who? For what? Are you kidding me right now? And so he's not pleased with this at all. He became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. Hey, listen, we're having a party in here. Your brother's back. Come on in. You're invited to be a part of this celebration. He's pleading with him. Come on in and celebrate. Don't miss, don't miss that word pleading. Come on in. Be a part of this. Inviting, pleading with him to come be a part of this celebration. But he answered, this is the older brother, the older son. But he answered and said to his father, look, exclamation point. He's not happy. Look, let me tell you how it is, dad. For so many years, I have been serving you. And I've never neglected a command of yours. I mean, I've been doing the right thing this whole time. You say it, I do it. I follow all the rules. I'm the good one. And you have never thrown any kind of party for me and my friends. Like, what, what gives? I'm the good son. Never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me even a young goat, not a fatted calf, but a young goat, so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. Ooh, so that's what he's spending his money on? So this guy comes back after wasting your money, spending it on women, and you killed the fatty calf for him? Can you understand the older brother's perspective? This doesn't feel fair to me. I'm the good one. Where's my party? I've never wasted your wealth. I follow all the rules. The father says to him, son, you have always been with me, and all that I have, all that's mine, it's yours. You've never wanted for anything. You've never been hungry. You've never been in need. You've never been out in the cold. You've never needed. I've, everything I have is already yours. Your, son, you're already here with me. I take care of you all the time, every day. You've never wanted for anything. You're here. But we had to celebrate, verse 22. 
we had to celebrate, had to rejoice. But this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. Many of you in this room know, know that song, Amazing Grace. How does that go? I, I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. But now I see. And that's what that epiphany is that the older brother experienced. And so there's the father talking to the older brother. And you remember who the older brother represents? You know, the righteous, air quotes, the Pharisees, the scribes who are upset over Jesus. And what are you doing spending your time ministering to these sinners? And so the father in the story says to them, hey, come and celebrate with us. Come and rejoice with us. Because there is one who was lost and is now saved. Let's celebrate that. And what does the older son do? Let's see. Wait a minute. doesn't say in my Bible. What about you? Does it say? How does the older brother respond? Does it say in your Bible? No. That's where Jesus ends the story. Does the older brother go in to celebrate? Does the older brother experience his epiphany? And the story is left there, kind of hanging. You have to appreciate just the levels that this story is working on. I mean, here is God the man, right? Here is Jesus talking to two different groups of people, talking to sinners and talking to the righteous. And here in the story, Father God is inviting those who see themselves as righteous to come and be a part of the celebration. Now, there's an old expression you've probably heard, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make a drink. And the father here in the story is leading his older son to that place of epiphany, but he can't generate that epiphany for him. And the epiphany, the revelation is this. All of us need to repent as this younger son has done. None of us should view ourselves as worthy of receiving from the father. All of us are in need of repentance. Will that older brother accept that? Will he, he's been brought to water. Will he drink? Will he receive that? Will he experience his epiphany? We don't know. And so that question is left out there for Jesus' audience. Will they experience that epiphany? Now, I don't know who you relate to more in that story. And I don't know if you'd be willing to admit it out loud who you relate to more in that story. But for those of us who have that younger brother mentality, we need to experience that epiphany where we stop blaming outside forces, where we take a look within, we stop considering the sins and the wrongs of others, and we look at ourselves and realize, whoa, wait a minute, how have I brought this upon myself? Where do I need to repent to have that epiphany? And for those of us who maybe more relate to that older brother type, and we think, well, I'm a good little boy, and I do what I'm supposed to do, and I follow all God's rules, well, guess what? Just because we follow all those rules doesn't mean we're more worthy of the Father's love. That's it. So we need to repent of that pride and realize that we're not worthy of the Father's love. That's not how love works. He just loves us because we're His, right? That's how that works. Sometimes I'm asked about this reputation that Christians have, that Christians can be um, judgmental. And so I'll give you two reasons why Christians can be judgmental. Uh, the first reason is that Christians are human beings and human beings are judgmental. So that's how that works, all right? Christians are judgmental, and it's not about our Christianity, it's about our humanity. That's what makes us judgmental. Here's the other factor. Some Christians, and they never admit this out loud, some Christians in the depths of their heart, in dark places they don't want to talk about, 
they secretly believe that they're more deserving of the Father's love than other people. And they might be able to say, hey, listen, we're all sinners in this world, and we all need to repent, and we all need to come before Jesus, and Jesus is the only one that can save us, but I secretly think I'm a little bit more deserving of salvation than that guy over there, because look at that guy over there. Look how he sins. I don't do that. I go to church. I go to small group. I give my money to the poor. I am somehow more deserving of salvation. No, we're not. No, we're not. The Father loves us all. None of us are deserving or worthy of His love. None of us. And yet He chooses to love us because that's who God is. And so let me ask you to contemplate this. Are you, this is going to be true for a percentage of you in this room, not everybody, but are you on the verge of an epiphany? Take a look at your situation. Take a look at your patterns. Take a look at your life. Are you at a place where you're just about to have that epiphany, that realize that, hey, I need to repent? Is there something in your life, something that you've been hiding from yourself? Whether you're a younger brother type or an older brother type or you don't know what type you are, is there a ver- are you on the verge of some type of an epiphany? Because what the, this story tells us, what this parable tells us is a story of someone who truly repents. And where there is that true repentance, there's restoration. The Father God restores and, and builds what's right. can save and redeem any situation that we bring before Him. Now, there's a play I had to read back in the day, back when I was in school. Um, you may have never read this play, but you've heard of it. It's called Oedipus Rex, or Oedipus the King. Have you heard that name before, Oedipus? All right. Now, there's one detail about Oedipus's life in his story that uh, Sigmund Freud really focused on, all right? And so there's one detail, a very disturbing, disgusting detail of Oedipus's story that we all know, but his story is actually much bigger than that wo- one gross detail, all right? And so the story of Oedipus, by the way, if you're not a fan of football, you can read this today. Um, <laughs> the story of Oedipus is the story of a man who views himself as a hero, He's the king of Thebes, and he's a good man, and the people all look up to him. They think, this guy is fantastic, but there's some kind of curse that befalls the land, and the people all say, there must be a defilement in our land. There's some kind of a defilement that has led to this curse, and Oedipus approaches the people and says, huh, people, you all know me. I'm your good king. I'm your hero. I will find the source of this curse. I will find this defilement, and I will drive it out of the land because I'm a good man, and I'm a hero. Yay, Oedipus. And he goes on his journey, and there's some riddles involved. It's a, it's a fun play. You should read it. But he gets to the end of his journey, and he realizes that he is the defilement. Oh, I'm the problem. Oh, I have brought this curse on the land. So he gouges at his eyes and exiles himself, all right? It's a fun play. You should give it a read. But he has this epiphany, and just when his eyes are open, he blinds himself because he realizes, wait, I'm the problem. You know, so far as we've made our way through this Jesus series, we've heard Jesus speak these words. He's, he's warned us about correcting other people. He says, why are you looking at the little tiny specks of sawdust in other people's eyes and trying to correct them? When the meanwhile, you have this whole two-by-four sticking out of your own eye. Focus on that first. So where is it in your life? Where do you need to repent? What's the sin you're overlooking? 
Bring yourself to that place. You know, the younger son in our story, he had to hit rock bottom. Don't let that be your destiny. Don't let that be your fate. Where is it? What, what arena of your life, where do you need to repent? Here's the good news. Whether we're younger brother types or older brother types, all of us, when we repent, will be received with compassion by Father God. There's nothing in our past that we've done. There's nothing in our future that we could do that would separate us from the love of Father God. In order for there to be true restoration in that relationship between God and yourself, between God and humankind, there must first be repentance. And so let us be a people who focus not on the little bits of sawdust in other people's eyes, but let us be a people who look inwardly and ask ourselves the question, where do we need to be repent? Where there is repentance, there will be redemption and restoration. Let's pray on that. Father, we thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your love. Most of all, Father, we thank you for doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Father God, you sent your son into this world to die on the cross for our sins, to pay off the, the debt that we owe to you, Father. And Lord, we know that there's nothing that we can do to earn your love, that your love is that starting place. You love us because that's who you are and that's what you do. And so we thank you for that tremendous love. And as we make our way through life, give us clarity, give us those epiphanies, give us those moments where we can realize the error of our ways and give us that true desire to be restored, that perfect relationship with you. And give us that desire to repent. Father God, we thank you for blessing us with this time, this worship service. But now that this worship service is coming to its end, God, we pray that you would allow our worship of you to continue. Father God, let us worship you with our lives. Let us worship you by the way that we love and serve one another and by the way that we love and serve you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.